Um, so Pastor Nick and Pastor Lloyd aren't here today. Pastor Lloyd's preaching at Mount Zion. And Nick was actually uh, in Tennessee this past week preaching at a college. And he, we've already heard some feedback from some of the students there. He was talking about the importance and the value of the church. And there's already been really positive feedback. So I know he's really grateful that you guys are letting him go out and do that and allowing him to do ministry that's reaching students all across the country. Um, so a while back, since they were going to be gone, they asked some of our past interns to come today. So we had Adam Darbone preach in the first service. You can see that online later today. And we're going to have Chris Engelman preach during this service. Uh, if you have been around High Point for a little while, you probably know that High Point is a teaching church. We have interns here, and we try to give them as much work and as much responsibility to try things and see what happens, see what God would do through that, and give them as many opportunities as possible. And so Chris came in 2012. Before that, he's originally from Minnesota, has been involved with a couple different churches, involved with church planting. And um, he came here from 2012 to 2013 to be the pastoral intern. He was involved with a handful of different men's ministry things here. Uh, he also works with, a, with refugees here in Madison. And it was really an honor to have him here serving for a year. He then went to Trinity, and he's now getting his Master's of Divinity at Trinity in um, the suburbs of Chicago. So Chris is here. He's going to give us the word of God this morning. And why don't we welcome him as he comes up? All right. <laughs> Smooth as a cheese grater. <laughs> well, like I was saying, um, really cool to be back here today. Really excited to have this chance to come here and preach. I mean, it's kind of an experience you don't often get in seminary. And I know I speak for Adam, too. When um, I look back on the year that I had to intern here and know that I was just deeply blessed by that. Not many people have a chance to do that, especially before seminary. And when I think about, you know, what I was thinking um, when I started interning here, there's probably a good chance I wouldn't be at Trinity right now if it wasn't for my, the opportunity to intern here and try a lot of different things here. So it's not an exaggeration to say that this internship changed my life. So thank you. The passage that we're, yeah. The passage that I'm preaching from today is Colossians 3. Um, verses 1 to 17. If you're using a pew Bible, this is on page 1834. I'll give you a second to get there. Paul writes, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. 
For you died, and your life is now hidden with God in Christ, with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is neither Jew, Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord, Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When I was a freshman in high school, I was, I need to find my clicker here. Here we go, I think. Okay. When I was a freshman in high school, um, I was out for football. And I didn't grow up playing a lot of football. I started when I was in seventh grade. And I found out pretty quickly that if you're going to do well in the football field, you have to like contact. You have to like hitting people. And even a couple years later as a freshman, I really wasn't that type of football player. Um, I did what I had to. I made do, and I got by. But... I found myself, second week of practice, two days, um, contact practice had started a few weeks before, and I'm just tired, and I'm sore, not really feeling football too much at the moment. And I remember one day walking out, coming out of lunch, looking off to the left, and we had about a quarter mile walk to the freshman football, uh, the, the practice fields, and I looked off to the left, and I see the varsity squad. And these people are just larger than we are. They're running the plays so much faster. And the sounds that are coming from their shoulder pads popping together were a lot louder than the sounds that me and my other 150-pound friends were making. And so I'm looking over at this and thinking, I don't want to do that. That looks horrible. And I don't know how I could do that in a few years. And so it just kind of seemed surreal that, like, that's, that's what we were going to do. But we stuck with it, and a few years later, there we were. We were the bigger, faster, stronger players. And there wasn't really any specific moment where it's like, now that's us. It just kind of happened over time. And so I, I mention that because in this passage, Paul is telling us that we need to become what we are. The things he talks about in this passage, putting to death our sinful nature, forgiving one another, bearing with each other, this stuff's hard. And oftentimes it's a little bit intimidating. And so this idea of becoming what we are that should be a little bit confusing, right? Because if we already are something, then why would we need to become them? Welcome to Christianity. 
Paul tells us a number of things like that in this passage. In verse 3, he says that we died with Christ. In verse 5, he says that we need to put to death what is earthly in us. In Galatians 3, outside of this passage, he says that we have clothed ourselves with, with Christ, and yet here he's telling us that we need to clothe ourselves as God's beloved people. He tells us in verse 1 that we've been raised with Christ, and yet we need to wait for that day when he is revealed in glory and we get to share with that. And so before we dive into this passage, I want to back up through Colossians, show us what Paul has said up to this point, to tell us who we are. See if I can figure out which way is forward here. In Colossians 1.13, he says that we were rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son he loves. There are two kingdoms. Either you're a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, you're under the rule and authority of darkness, or you're under the rule and authority of God's beloved Son. We're all like refugees running from the kingdom we once lived in, enjoying the new life that we get to live with Christ. In 121, Paul tells us that we are holy in God's sight, without blemish, free from accusation. If there is one person that I want to look at me and see me without blemish, that would be God. And through no effort of my own, God does. Chapter 2, he says that we are alive with Christ, all our sins are forgiven, and our debt is nailed to the cross. Christ's enemies put him on the cross so that he would lose, but that is where he triumphed. And that is where his triumph overflows to us too. In a legal sense, our debt is gone. And Paul picks up this idea in chapter 3, saying that we died with Christ. And so as we ask yourself why that's good news, the simple answer is that we died to the power of sin. It no longer has the control and influence over us that it otherwise would. And so if you're here checking, checking things out today, maybe you're visiting, and you don't identify as a follower of Christ, know that there is no reason these things can't be true of you. None of us earned this. This is something we just received as a gift. And so it's not a decision you have to make right now. By all means, take your time, explore this. But know that God knows your sin better than you do, just like he knows mine better than, better than I do. And he's glad to offer this to us. So in chapter 3, as we, we look at becoming, becoming who we are, we see that we're supposed to set our hearts and our minds on the things above. If all this stuff that we just looked at, these things about our identity are true, then orienting our whole lives around that makes perfect sense. Why wouldn't we, why wouldn't we do that, right? It's kind of like if you were playing a game of roulette, right? The game where you spin the numbers, the ball lands, and if it lands on what you bet on, you win. If you knew what the, the ball was going to land on, what number was going to be selected, you'd have no reason not to put all your chips on that number, both the big chips and the little chips. And in a way, that's kind of how our life with Christ works. Knowing that he's coming back, knowing that one day we'll get to share in his glory, that we'll be resurrected from the dead to experience a renewed physical earth, renewed physical bodies. Um, there's a passage in Isaiah 25 that talks about this day and describes it like a rich feast, a day where death will be swallowed up forever, and a day where God will wipe away tears from all faces. Knowing that this is true, why wouldn't we hold back? The more that we focus on this, the more that we set our hearts and our minds according to this reality, we're almost like someone who, playing this game of roulette, is celebrating even before the ball lands. And so that should be puzzling to people around us in a good kind of way. We all have kind of a hard time becoming these people that we are. 
because it's intimidating. It's kind of like me looking at this varsity practice. This stuff Paul talks about here, we know it's going to take a lot of work. Our sin doesn't want to die. And it's hard to forgive people, especially when you've been hurt. And we've all been around people who, they're kind of like bigger, faster, stronger Christians. And it's kind of uncomfortable to be around them. That was my high school school youth pastor. I always got the sense that he just didn't think I was being outward about my faith enough. And he was right. And so, last week as I listened to Nick's vision talk, he talked about embracing discipline. Even though our salvation is a free gift that we're still called um, to work, train ourselves to be the church that we're called to be. And so here, we're called to orient our hearts and our, mind, and our minds around this reality. And this passage gives us some clues of how to do that. The more that we do this, the more that we have a vision for our future with Christ, the more we will overcome the fear and intimidation and step into the shoes that God's given us. Paul tells us that We become who we are by putting to death our old self, our sinful self. He lists, gives us two sin lists here, um, two lists of behaviors that are patterns of this world and not the pattern of the kingdom that we now live in, that we've been transferred into. This first list has stronger implications for our relationship with God, and the second, more implications for our relationships with each other. There's overlap between those. Let me back up here. He doesn't get into specifics. He talks about things like sexual immorality, but he doesn't talk about specific types of sexual immorality. And I think he's assuming that, like me, you probably don't need a whole lot of help identifying sin in your life. There's probably something that comes to mind right now. I just rejoined LA Fitness a couple weeks ago and get back in the basketball court. And when I walk in, there are 15 women on treadmills. Right when I walk in the door, that's what I see. And I know if I let my eyes linger that that's wrong. It's not good for my spiritual life. It's not good for my thought life. And it doesn't take a sophisticated theology of sin to realize that. And so today I want us, instead of brainstorming, trying to identify new forms of sin in your life, I want us to think about how we go from putting up with our sin to putting it to death. Christ freed us from it. We may as well take advantage of it. This first list, Paul's insight is that These patterns of sin are idolatrous. One of my professors this last semester, he talked about how through the whole Bible, um, you see this pattern of idolatry, and it's both our desires and our fears working together. And those things are moving us away from worshiping God to worshiping something else. It's easy to see that as it relates relates to greed. Um, I think of myself, on one hand, there's my desires. Um, You might call it motorcycle lust. I have a perfectly functional 33-year-old motorcycle and, well, I should say perfectly functional if I made a couple repairs. But so even though it's, you know, I like it, part of me really wants to drop a few thousand bucks and get something faster, gets a little bit more attention. And so on one hand, my desire is telling me spend my money on myself. And on the other hand, there's my fear. Right? I'm in school. I tell myself if I graduate with a lot of debt, well, that might have implications on raising a family, that might have implications on being able to follow God's call for my vocation. And so, on the other hand, there's my fear, and both of these things work together, and suddenly I don't want to stretch myself to be generous. I don't want to be a good steward of God's money. I want to hoard it up and save it for myself. And so realizing that, that these things flow out of idolatry shows us why, why this is such a struggle, why it's hard to get rid of these things. 
Since idolatry, we often go to it to relieve our fears. We almost use these things like coping mechanisms or to experience, like, to get the sense like we're really living life. And so getting rid of these just seems like a lot of work. It seems very unpleasant. But I think all of us know the very thing that we were made to do is to worship God, to serve Him, to let Him alleviate our fears, fulfill the desires of our heart. And since we as humans have all failed to do the very thing we're created for, this passage tells us that the wrath of God is coming. Are you fighting your sin? Is there something that you're craving or something that you're afraid of that is keeping you stuck in these patterns? The second list, this list of interpersonal sins, things like anger, talking bad about each other, looking down on each other for things like religious heritage or ethnicity, socioeconomic status. If these things characterize our, computer, our, our community, I'm sure we can all get these elsewhere, right? Why would we bother gathering here it would seem a lot less pretentious, right, if we weren't getting this from people who are claiming to be God's children. And so if we let these things characterize us, they will tear apart what we're doing as a church. They'll kill any desire we have to, to contribute, to give sacrificially, not just our money but our time, um, to let ourselves bear with each other, forgive each other. Apart from Jesus, we really don't experience a lot of success getting rid of this in our life. We might be able to suppress it for a little while out of just sheer willpower, but we all burn out that way. Or we might be able to change the form, right? If, if I'm prideful about um, one thing and I decide, I, I realize that's a problem, well, I might get rid of that, but then I just might become prideful about something else. And the more we struggle apart from Christ, it's almost like sin has us in a chokehold, right? The, the harder we struggle, the faster we're suffocated, the faster we're powerless. But the reality is that Christ has freed us. He has given us resources and power to fight this battle. And we can't have victory here. John Owen, um, he's a 16th century Puritan, or 17th century, I always get my six, that whole century gap mixed up. He's a Puritan, from, wrote this book in 1656, The Mortification of Sin and Believers. And it's kind of a classic on the subject of, of killing sin in our lives. I'm going to paraphrase a few of his quotes because his English is four centuries old and it's a little, little tough at points. Um, just be warned, some of this hurts a little bit. He tells us that any effort to kill sin apart from the Holy Spirit, trying to do it out of your own strength, is the substance of all false religion. Every religion calls for us to be good people, right? Christianity is the religion that says, God is with you, he will give you the help you need. He says that we are in most danger of our sin when it seems most quiet. He has this analogy. It's almost like a river. A river might seem calm on the surface in one spot, but oftentimes that's where it's actually deepest and where the currents are most violent beneath the surface. And so, like this river, when our sin seems most calm, that's often when it's doing the most damage to us, when it's fighting us in the most subtle ways that are choking off our spirituality. He says that the vigor, power, and comfort of our spiritual lives depends on killing the deeds of our sinful nature. I don't know about you, but that hurts a little bit. We're not used to talking to each other that way. You know, it's, it's God who gives me the power to overcome sin, right? That is right. But at the same time, he calls us to use the resources that we have to use our own efforts and our own choices to fight our sin. He says the one that stands still and lets their enemies hit them with double blows without resisting, 
will undoubtedly be conquered in the issue. If sin be subtle, watchful, strong, and always at work in the business of killing our souls, and we are lazy, negligent, foolish in killing sin, can we expect a comfortable event? There is not a day that goes by that sin does not beat us or is beaten, prevails or is prevailed on, and it will always be this way so long as we live in this world. He's saying that we can never afford not to be fighting our sin. We should always be focusing on it. And he kind of paints this picture of, you know, you're, you're in like this fist fight with your sin. And apart from Christ, it was like we were bound. You know, we, we had to just sit there and take the hits. We couldn't really fight back. But now that you've been released, and not only that, you've been given a sword, how ridiculous is it if you're getting hit in the face over and over again and you're not striking back? He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So as we think about this, what are the sinful patterns in your life that you've grown comfortable with, that you've stopped trying to fight? As we think about becoming who we are, we see that we need to put to death our old self, our sinful self. We also need to clothe ourselves as God's people. Paul uses a a clothing metaphor here in verses 9 and 10. I'm talking about this interpersonal sin list. He says, you've taken off your old self. And then in verse 12, he says to clothe ourselves as God's chosen people, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And so the best way to fight our sin isn't just to think, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Take hold of what you are supposed to do. The best way to get rid of your old clothes is to put on your new clothes that Christ has granted you. We all have a limited amount of time. We can only think a limited amount of thoughts, do a certain amount of things with our day. And so the more that we fill our thoughts and our day with things that God has us, the more we'll be the ones choking off our sin. The way Paul uses this clothing metaphor reflects the way clothing is understood throughout the Bible. Um, if you trace Bible through the whole, tr- trace clothing through the whole Bible, you'll see that it both communicates identity and it provides protection. Think of Old Testament priests as they, they went into God's presence. The clothing that they wore um, covered over their shame. It, it showed their identity to God as clean. And at the same time, it kind of served as like a, a fire suit as they came into the presence of God's glory. And today we, we, we still just intuitively experience clothing that way. This is what happens when you, you don't take advantage of sin's protective aspect. Last September, I was, I didn't know this at the time, but I was taking down a small poison oak bush or tree, whatever you want to call it, with a handsaw, no gloves. So dress for your work. <laughs> and then we also, we just know that like the way you dress says something about you are, right? Um, I have a, a friend named Jeff at my, my church that I've joined in uh, Chicago, and he said something last week. He's an engineering student, and I make fun of engineering students because I was one. Said something that just kind of fit your stereotypical engineering student, the way they were dressed. It was all about function, not so much about fashion. Sitting there wearing his his blue jeans, his button-up, and his snow boots. So it didn't matter if he was going to a coffee shop or if he's going to a blizzard. He was ready for it all. So I'm kind of stretching myself today wearing wearing this sport coat. In this passage, Paul talks about clothing, this idea of it communicating identity and the idea of it providing protection in terms of our interpersonal relationships. He mentions it right after that second interpersonal sin list. And so the way that we treat each other should identify ourselves as God's people. Not only that, but as we clothe ourselves with things like kindness and compassion, 
that will protect us as we do life together and as we serve our church together. Clothing ourselves together provides a new unity, a new cooperation that we couldn't do apart from Christ's work in our lives. And so as we think about this, I want us to ask, how do we actually clothe ourselves this way? Short answer, um, I think Paul gets at with this introductory phrase, remember your identity as God's beloved people. The more that we remember that there is a God who cares about us, who loves us, and who's very powerful, the less we'll feel like we need to protect ourselves according to the pattern of the world, according to our old self, things like slander or lying. Right? All of us have, at times in our lives, dressed as if we were insecure or dressed out of insecurity. Most of us can probably think back to junior high, if nothing else. Maybe you think of someone who dressing too promiscuous or um, out of an effort to be desired or dressing with really fancy clothes, expensive clothes, because they want to communicate significance or status. Imagine for a second what it would look like if we dressed physically the way that we might dress if we were living to the old self. Simple picture I have for you is Oakland Raiders fan. (laughs) And these spiked high heels, I've never seen those before, but that would hurt. Wouldn't want to trip on that person. (laughs) Imagine if we're living to our old selves, figurative speaking, if we're clothed this way, trying to minister to each other. As you're trying to help someone out, it's almost like this guy trying to give you a hug. It might mean well, but you might get spiked at some point. (laughs) And so the more that we set our hearts and our feelings on the things above, the more that we remember that God's powerful and working on on our behalf, the less we'll feel his compulsion to clothe ourselves according to our old self. The fact is, though, this community is filled full of sinful people, myself included. And so as you get involved in this community in deeper and deeper ways, sooner or later, you probably will get spiked. And your call is not to protect yourself or defend yourself. I mean, not, don't take that too far. But your call is to to not dress according to the old self. Your call is to follow the one who got spiked on your behalf. His death on a cross is worse than anything you'll ever have to experience. And there's something about remembering that and remembering what he did for you that makes it easier to bear with each other. Paul says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. As more and more of us do that, our church will be the type of community that's talked about in this passage, that's peaceful, coordinated together, unified to do the, the work that it's called to do, the work that brings about salvation for people we care about and people we haven't even met yet. So we need to be dressed for our work. As you think about this, What disciplines might you take hold of to remind yourself who you are so that you don't feel this compulsion to resort to your old pattern? If you're not setting aside a little bit of time every day just to to read and pray through your Bible, that's where I would start. But there's a lot of different things you could do. Maybe you take one, uh, one promise that God gives us in Scripture every week and just journal about how it applies to you. I think as you remind yourself throughout your week, throughout your day, of who you are, that sin's grip will will grow weaker on you, that you will just naturally become a person who, who wants to forgive others, who wants to love, love others. Paul tells us that we become who we are by worshiping as we're made to. Worship is kind of a big deal to God, and giving thanks is a huge part of that. If you were to go through Colossians and circle all the, the, the mentions of gratitude or thanksgiving, you'd see that Paul sees us as a, a pretty fundamental part of living out who we are now people who have been rescued from a hopeless situation and they realize it and who know that they're coming into 
um, an eternity that is better than anything they could hope for. And then in this verses 15 to 17, I forgot to put the, the reference up, but you can see he mentions it three times just in these three verses. And so ask yourself for a second, why is worship so important? Primarily because it pleases God, but also because it transforms us. And those are meant to work together. I think all of us can think of times where um, you, make, you made a decision, maybe you're riding the fence. You chose to go to church, you chose to go to small group, chose just to spend some time in prayer or reading your Bible. And without really being able to put your finger on why, you just felt better afterwards because you're reminded of who your God is. I've had a number of times like that last semester where I'd have a quiz coming up in about 45 minutes and another half an hour or so would, I'd be more comfortable going into that quiz. But at the same time, sensing the anxiety at work in me, I realized I just needed to go to chapel and worship God, be reminded of who he is. And even last Sunday, as I was worshiping in my church um, and you know, my thoughts are already starting to get anxious about this sermon today and thinking forward to this, but just thinking about the words that we were singing and how those apply to my situation. It just felt like a, a new excitement to actually be here. I want to mention two passages real quickly that just further illustrate the transforming effects of worship on us. The first, Romans one twenty one, shows what happens to people who don't worship God. It says in that, that verse that they refuse to worship God, they refuse to give him thanks, and as a re- result, they're given over to futile thinking and hardened hearts. And then on the other side, people who do, Philippians 4, 4 to 8, it's people rejoice in God, they're freed from their anxieties, they set them before God with thanksgiving, and it says that a peace that transcends all understanding, something that they can't understand, overwhelms their hearts and their minds. So all that said, how do we worship? This passage um, has a few insights that we can benefit from. It says in verse, uh, lost it, verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 16. Let the the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is talking about more than just the the worship services, the worship songs that we sing together as a church. This is talking about the the podcast that we listen to, the music that we listen to on our own, the movies we watch. We all have a choice of what messages to let into our lives. And this passage, I actually wrote this 12-page exegesis paper on which I'll spare you any details from. But I think in this verse, when it's talking about these songs, it's talking about these being the vehicle for how we teach and admonish each other. And if that sounds kind of foreign, um, there's a parallel passage in Ephesians 5 that kind of has the same idea. Think for a second how music might teach you. Music sticks in our head, unlike something like me talking to you right now. You've probably forgotten everything I've, half of everything I've said to say, or started to say. Last night I found myself driving and just started whistling this tune and I thought, like, what is this from? And it was something that I used to play in my tuba in eighth grade. So, and yet, there it was in my head, still. Um, It's a lot easier to remember song lyrics. And we find ourselves just kind of popping into our heads. So think of the potential that music has to teach us. And not just music, but I want to propose that all art in general tends to have a more persuasive effect on us than something just like propositional teaching. I watched a, a movie with my roommate a couple weeks ago, a fairly new Matt Damon movie called Elysium. It's kind of this sci-fi movie. It was okay. But you could probably boil down what the, the movie's message was to something like, when people get wealthy, they have a tendency to be overly concerned about their own well-being and hoard up their possessions, and poor people suffer. Now, if you say something like that to me, I would agree with you and say, okay, good. 
But watching this movie, you know, scenes unfold. There's this uh, rich manager at a company, and he just coldly dismisses the, the main character of the movie who is mortally injured on the job. And so seeing that, emotions in me, I, like I get a little bit angry. And I'm sure all of you can relate to that. And so as followers of Jesus, what this passage tells us about the, the things above, focusing on that, our emotions are part of that, and we need to do what we can to align our emotions. Now, letting the message dwell among us, that will take some effort because my taste in art, you might watch Elysium and be like, that was a pointless movie. Why would I ever watch that? We all have different tastes and you have to find what, what stirs you and what motivates you. What that looks like for me, um, I actually, um, maybe this is still the engineering student in me, I keep a list of songs that I like on an Excel spreadsheet. You don't have to do that, but that works for me. And so I do that so that when I'm driving somewhere, I can have a playlist of something that isn't just pleasant music. It's actually something that, that makes me think a little bit. And just to be clear, I don't want to take this too far and say you should only be listening to, to music that, that worships Jesus. I think there is music that, that honors good things, even if it doesn't get that far. And there's something to be said for knowing our culture. But that being said, I think we should pay attention to our motivation for what we're seeking out, for the messages that we're letting into our lives and the effect that it's having on us. So how can you let this message dwell among you more richly? Maybe it's memorizing a short passage. Maybe you, maybe you sing this passage to yourself so that it sticks in your head, um, going over it when you're driving or when you're in the shower. Maybe it's coming to, to worship services like this more often. Paul tells us as we go on to sing to God with gratitude in our hearts. And there are two points I want us to take away from this. One is that it involves actually singing, participation. And the second is that it's not just singing. It's actually feeling, uh, focusing on the words, letting that stir up your emotions. As someone who's not particularly musical, um, this is what that has looked like for me. Growing up, I can't remember singing in church past the age of about 10. And then when I was a freshman in college, um, I was at a worship service, and everyone else was singing, so I felt like I would be, you know, the odd one out if I wasn't. And so I just started kind of barely mouthing words. And I don't think the person next to me could have even heard me if they were trying to. But it, it was a start. And now almost a decade later, I'm still not loud. Um, you can ask Adam, he probably couldn't even hear me. I'm still kind of figuring out where my voice fits in. But I enjoy it, and I get more out of the worship service when I'm participating. And so, my encouragement, if you're like I was, find someone loud, sit next to them, start somewhere. And then also, it's, I think we can all relate how easy it is to just go through the motions and sing without really thinking about the words. Not just when we're in church, but when we're listening to music, too. The classic example in my life, um, some of you know the song, R. Kelly's Remix to Ignition. When I was in high school, <laughs> My friend Brian was singing this in basketball practice, and I'm like, it's kind of a catchy song. And I remember at one point, I was driving to a, a summer league basketball game. It's in a great mood because I was going to play basketball. It was a beautiful night. And I'm listening to this song, and it's a feel-good song. And so I just kind of, it landed with me. I just kind of fell in love with it. And then, sometime later, uh, my bubble burst, and I realized the whole song was about getting drunk and hooking up with, hotel, hooking up with women in hotel rooms. And I look at that, and it's like, I don't know how I missed that. It's not like it's very subtle in the song. <laughs> But it just shows you how little I was paying attention to the lyrics. And I think all of us kind of have this maybe default to just whatever sounds nice, we listen to it. 
And so my point is, don't just go through the motions when you worship. Think about the words. Let them minister to you. Apply to your heart. Paul tells us in verse 17 to do everything in word or deed with a desire to honor the name of Christ. He goes on after this verse and the rest of the passage, which we're not getting to today, about kind of our day-to-day responsibilities in our family, at work. And I think those are the harder ones to do with a posture of worship because there aren't mountaintop experiences every day. It's not exciting every day. But at the same time, I think that will have a huge impact. And that's probably why it's harder. For me, seminary this first semester, this was one of those struggles. I kind of developed a cynical attitude towards higher education when I was an undergrad. And so it's been work to get over that. And you might think, you know, being around Christians all the time, studying the Bible all the time, like it should be easy to worship, right? It's really easy to turn studying the Bible into a textbook when you're in seminary and to get focused on the short-term tasks instead of thinking about the big picture of what you're doing. And that's something all of us face um, in our jobs, in our families. All of us have pressing priorities. We have um, a lot of things on our plate. And at the same time, we want to engage with people. um, And that takes patience and emotional energy. And so it's a hard tension to walk. Whether you're thinking about your, your work, your family, the ministry that you're helping with at High Point, or other Christian ministries, other community service in your church, spending time with your friends or your hobbies. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. I don't want you to get too stressed out and think that you have to have a purpose for every single thing you're doing and kill all spontaneity in your life. But at the same time, why not ask yourself, even with the little things, is this honoring to Christ? As I was reviewing my my sermon last night, I realized I probably made the mistake that a lot of seminary students make. It's packing in a ton of information. And so as I start to wrap up, I want want us to, to look back to the beginning of this passage, what Paul calls us to do, to set our hearts and our minds on Christ Jesus. There's a a book I read a few years ago by a guy named Donald Whitney called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And I was in a really good place to read a book like that at the time. He kind of goes through and just talks about different practices that um, the Bible prescribes for us to to train ourselves in godliness. And he opens with this illustration to kind of communicate the importance of having a vision. Imagine this eight-year-old boy who has to, he's taking guitar lessons against his own will. And he looks outside as he's forced to to sit inside and run through these scales. And he sees his friends playing baseball. All of us would agree with him that 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 would not be fun, right? Just like some of the things Paul talks about in here are not fun. But if somehow he could fast forward, see himself 30 years from then, um, and just see this picture of him in a packed auditorium, this beautiful music coming from his guitar seemingly effortlessly, it would be a lot easier for him to, to engage in that discipline. And so for us, start to think not just about our eternity, but think about our eternity. But think about how this has already started in our lives now. You're already becoming people who are governed more by God's spirit and less by the compulsions of your sinful nature. And you're already becoming people who are more loving, more forgiving, and have a greater desire to worship God out of the overflow of realizing what he's done for us. So let us become what we are. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that there is a new reality, the things above, that we've been transferred into your kingdom and that 
sin has lost its hold on us. I pray that you would give us greater awareness of how sin continues to choke, choke out our lives and give us a greater distaste for it. Help us to fight it vigorously. I pray that as we do so, we would see your hand at work in our lives and in our community. We'd experience your grace in more profound ways every day. And may all our lives be worship in everything we do. Amen. Let's do that together now. Please stand with us as we sing our last song.